thank you for your welcome as a church family and uh, appreciate your prayer. Please do continue to pray for us. Um, but let's pray together now as we come to God's word. God our Father, we thank you that you make yourself known. Please make yourself known to us now by your Spirit, through your word. Amen. Well, why bother? Why bother? We're going to be thinking this morning about why Jesus bothered and why Jesus came. Not just what Jesus came to do, but why Jesus came to do it. And we're going to use a word that uh, we're going to find a word that's very important for us to define carefully. And before we do that, I want you to watch this short video clip uh, as we remind ourselves of the importance of knowing what words mean. So if we can have the video. is at the heart of the UK economy and many others. People fight for it, die for it and put it in China pigs. So what is money? Put simply, money is the best way we have of telling how much money you've got. Over the centuries, many things have been used as money, including amber, wheat, eggs, traveller's checks, feathers, book vouchers, lobsters, beads, gold, leather, nectar points, rice, peas, mugs and money. It was only the last of these that caught on. Increasingly these days, money isn't something you can hold in your hand or bite on like a pirate because it's stored in the imaginations of computers. And some of those computers are probably here in the Bank of England. Um, it's a very funny video if you keep watching it, but uh, her name's Philomena. We'll come back to Philomena in a moment. Um, but uh, for now, please can you take a Bible and open it at John's Gospel in chapter 17. Uh, if it's one of the Bibles on the seats in front of you, it's probably on page 1085. John's Gospel, chapter 17. And I'm going to read the first five verses to you. And Jesus has just been instructing a group of his close followers mostly preparing them for the events that are about to take place over the next few days. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Well, you might have noticed a really important word there, the word glory. But what is glory? I think glory is one of those words that we often use without really thinking about what we mean by it. I certainly use it without thinking about what it means or understanding exactly what it means. And in the video, we watched Philomena Kunk struggling to understand money. So what is money? 
It's okay, I've got some northern friends here today, so please forgive me. Uh, so what is money? Put simply, money is the best way we have of telling how much money you've got. We might laugh, but I wonder if we're sometimes guilty of using glory in the same way. Glory is the best word we have for describing glory. So what is glory? We describe a beautiful view as glorious. That's certainly true for this view from Mount Snowdon. We might even think a mug of tea is glorious. This woman certainly does. And so do I. Uh, They're two of my favorite things, Snowdon and tea. But what about the Oxford English Dictionary, a more reliable source perhaps? What does this say glory means? Well, firstly, uh, glory in the Oxford English Dictionary online is high renown or honor won by notable achievements. RAF pilots, perhaps risking their lives for the glory of our nation. Second meaning, magnificence or great beauty, like the view from Mount Snowdon. Or we might speak of something being restored to its former glory, or the glory of a piece of art, maybe. Third meaning, praise, worship, and thanksgiving offered to God. We speak and sing about giving glory to God. And the fourth meaning, a luminous ring or halo, especially as depicted around the head of Christ or a saint. Here's one such painting of Jesus on the ceiling of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. There's also a verb definition to take pride in, to glory in, but that's not meant to be an English lesson, so I'm going to move on. Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary is great, but it isn't actually much use to us here because Jesus didn't consult it for his choice of words. I don't know if you knew that but Jesus didn't consult the Oxford English Dictionary. A far more useful source of background knowledge can be found in the Old Testament part of the Bible, and Jesus did know these books inside out. How do the, Old Testament, how do the books of the Old Testament part of the Bible use the word glory? Well, let's look at three, just three ways the Old Testament uses the word glory. And I'm going to give you a warning. We're doing some groundwork, so keep with me, and we're going to get to John in a minute. We're going to get to the point... But this is really helpful groundwork as we look through some verses in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most common thing that glory refers to in the Old Testament is a visible presence of God. Sometimes in a cloud, excuse me, sometimes in fire. In chapter 16 of the book called Exodus, Moses and Aaron tell God's people that the glory of the Lord is something that can be seen. Indeed, something that they will see. And later on, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Again, in chapter 24 of Exodus, we read of the glory of the Lord settling on Mount Sinai. God's glory was his visible appearance in what looked like a cloud covering the mountain. And then in the next sentence, we read that to God's people, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Here's those verses from Exodus 24. Where Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, that's God's people, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain. Similarly, God's glory is described as filling the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. The tabernacle was the tent version of the temple before the temple was built. But both were known, the tabernacle and the temple were known as a place where God's glory dwelt, where God dwelt among his people. When the tabernacle, the tent, had been set up, 
we read in Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we read a similar thing at the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, but I won't read that now. That's uh, chapter 8, verse 10 to 12, if you are making notes. So the glory of the Lord referred to the visible presence of the Lord among his people, resembling a cloud by day and a fire by night. The word glory was also used in at least two other ways. The second use of the word glory is in the revelation of God's character. Again, in Exodus, we read in chapter 33 of Moses asking God to show him his glory. Listen to God's answer. Exodus 33, it's on the screens. Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So God's glory is going to pass by Moses. God is going to show something of his glory to Moses. God is going to parade his character in front of Moses. To see God's character is to see his glory. The moment when God showed his glory to Moses is recorded in the next chapter, chapter 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. So the word glory can also refer to God's character. God shows his glory by making himself known. Here, making himself known as a good God, declaring his compassion, his grace. God shows his glory by making himself known. Finally, and very briefly, the third use that we want to think about of the word glory in the Old Testament has to do with the praise and worship of God. We see this in uh, the Psalms, in uh, First Chronicles, and in the, in the prophets, many places. Listen, just for one example, listen to these verses from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And all in his temple cry glory. So glory is used also as an exclamation of praise. In that sense, it can be given to God. Worshippers can give God 
glory. They can give him honor. We're nearly there, okay? So we've seen that glory can refer to the visible presence of God among his people, whether in a dark cloud or a consuming fire. Glory can also refer to God's character as he makes himself known to his people. And glory is also used in the praise and worship of God. We've barely touched the surface. Um, Glory is used in other ways. Uh, One other important example in the the prophet Ezekiel uh, describes a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And here glory clearly has to do with brilliant, radiant, awesome, blinding light. But we must return to John's gospel in the New Testament part of the Bible. And if you've zoned out, you've missed some important background information, you might still have a Philomena Kunk understanding of glory, but uh, it's worth you joining us back again now. God had actually promised that he would show his glory and that all people would see it together. Take a look later on if you want to Isaiah chapter 40, if you want to see an example of that promise. The question is, what would the people who believe this promise be expecting? Cloud, raging fire, brilliant, radiant light, a spectacular display of splendor, majestic power, thunder and lightning, smashing trees and forests. Was the Christ going to arrive on the scene like a human neon sign, a glowing, luminous halo Jesus? Well, God did show his glory, but it wasn't in quite the way some might have expected. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. When Jesus prayed this, he was using glory in at least two senses, and we'll come to the second sense later. But firstly, Jesus was using glory in a sense of making known like the displaying of character in Exodus 33 and 34. God was about to show his glory, as promised in Isaiah and elsewhere. Jesus had already shown something of his glory, for example, in the miracles he performed. In John's gospel, these miracles, these supernatural events, are not called miracles, they're called signs. Signs because they show something of who Jesus is. They show hints of his glory. But now, now Jesus prepares for the ultimate display of glory. How did Jesus glorify the Father by the Father glorifying him? How is this prayer answered? Well, the giveaway is the short opening sentence of Jesus' prayer. Father, the hour has come, or the time has come. And if you'd read the, first, uh, the previous 16 chapters of John's Gospel, you know that the hour, the time, is an important theme in John. It's occurred a number of times already, but previously it was always spoken of as not yet here, until chapter 12, that is, when the time had come. The time, or the hour, is the appointed time for Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his return to the Father, also known as his glorification. Just uh, turn a few pages back, if you'd like, to chapter 12 and take a look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
It's clear from the reference to the need for a grain of wheat to die that Jesus' glorification involves his death. It's even more explicit a few few verses later on in chapter 12, where Jesus' death by crucifixion, he's being lifted up on a cross, is linked to his prayer, Father, glorify your name. And this wasn't the kind of glory the crowd were expecting. The idea of a crucified Messiah they thought was ridiculous. Again, if you're taking notes, have a look later on at verses 27 to 34 of chapter 12. But ridiculous or not, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Within hours, Jesus will be arrested and falsely accused. Within hours, Jesus will be mocked, beaten, and tortured. Within hours, Jesus will be executed in a most brutal and shameful way. And yet in that hour, in that moment of horror and shame, of humiliation, of apparent total weakness and helplessness, in that hour, the Son of God is glorified. His glory is displayed. His character is paraded. It's as if again God speaks, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Do you want to see what God is really like? Do you want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus laying down his life to give life to his people. See in this picture the compassion of God for a broken world, a compassion that reaches your brokenness and pain. See in this picture the mercy and grace of God who is patient with us and abounding in love for us. God who delights to forgive us and bless us from his goodness, though we deserve the opposite. Maybe you've come to doubt God's goodness. Maybe painful experiences in your life have caused you to struggle to trust him. Come and see his glory this morning. Come and see his goodness displayed. Maybe you've never been sure of God's existence. Perhaps you're waiting for God to show himself to you before you believe. Many people say something like this. Whether you're a student who's just left home and turned up in Southampton, you've grown up in a Christian family, now you're really having to think for yourself. Or whether you're a hardened skeptic much later on in your life, waiting for God to show himself to you before you believe. Come and see his glory this morning. Come and see the way in which God has chosen to show himself, the way in which God has already made himself known. This isn't a myth These are historical events. They happened. And I'm confident if you investigate the evidence, the only credible explanation for these events and their relationship to the things written hundreds of years beforehand in the Old Testament, the only credible explanation is that in the crucifixion of Jesus, the glory of God is displayed. It won't do to use the excuse with God that you were waiting for a more obvious demonstration of his glory. This is it. There is no more obvious demonstration. 
Jesus is praying, show who your son is, so that your son may show who you are. Show who your son is through this hour, through this cross, through his death, through his showing his love for his sheep, so that your son may show who you are. Because in the death of Jesus, we see a picture of the Father's love, the Father's compassion, the Father reaching out to a broken world. The scholar, uh, Don Carson, who you'll get to know me, he's one of my favorite uh, scholars, teachers, he says this, the supreme moment of divine disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of the cross. Maybe it'd be right to just reflect on this now for a moment. In, in our hearts, quietly. I'm going to put some words up on the screen, which are words of a song by Matt Redman. And uh, I've just been really impacted by these words as I've been preparing for today. And a call to come and see. Come and see what God has done. Come and see what love has won. God, it's your love here on display. We stand in awe. It takes our breath away. Please take a moment now just to reflect on the glory of God displayed in the sun on the cross. Lord Jesus, we want to worship you for how you have shown the glory of God to us. For what it cost you to make known the glory of God. Father, please help us to see. Amen. The hour also included Jesus rising from death. And returning to his father. That's clear in chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father. And that's the second sense in which Jesus prays to be glorified. We read in verse 5 of chapter 17. And now, father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus desires to be again at his father's side, clothed in splendor. We don't really have time to think much further about that this morning, though. Why did Jesus bother? Ultimately, Jesus came to glorify his Father. Jesus came to reveal his Father, to make him known, and in so doing, to bring him honor. The glory of the Father was the motivation of all that Jesus the Son did. But we have a part to play in this. Jesus and the Father are glorified, but what does it mean for us? We'll take a look again at chapter 17 of John. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 2 makes sense of the ultimate display of God's glory being in the shame of the cross. Because that shame was necessary to save a people. This means the saving of a people from something and to something. 
We might be more used to thinking about what it is we're saved from, our rebellion, the consequences of our rejection against God, of God, evil, etc. We talk a lot about what we're saved from. But here the focus is on what we are saved to, and that is eternal life. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's an obvious link with Jesus' work of making the Father and Son known. And this is eternal life, that we know the Father and Son. If I can put it like this, Jesus and the Father have done their bit. Now we need to respond. And knowing someone is more important than knowing about them. I'm really thankful to have many friends here this morning who I've known for many years, enjoyed knowing you for many years. Um, And in fact, recently I was asked to provide a reference for a security clearance for one of them. Uh, Let's call him Dave, in case he has to kill us all afterwards, Um, which he might do if I told you his real name. No, he wouldn't really. Um, But uh, it might surprise you to learn that in the thoroughness of our government, the question I was asked was not, did Dave make himself known to you? Did Dave say, hi, I'm Dave? The questions I was asked were questions about how well I know Dave what my assessment of his character was, of his conduct in the home, his circumstances. Could anyone have any financial hold over him? They wanted to know how much I knew, how well I knew Dave, not just that I knew about him. I gave you a glowing reference, by the way, uh, so don't worry. If you don't get it, it's not me. Um, But my point in telling you this story is this. I'd not be able to tell you that, I'd not be able to provide that reference for Dave if when, he respo- if he, when he met me uh, and he said, hi, I'm Dave, nice to meet you. He didn't say that's not his name, but you get the point. If he came and said, hi, I'm Dave, nice to meet you. If I just said, really, how interesting, and walked off, then I wouldn't have been able to write this reference for him. Instead, we got to know each other and formed a very close and significant friendship. And I count him as a, a very dear friend. Anyway, uh, so Jesus and the Father have made themselves known. They've introduced themselves, if you like. How have we responded? Have we just said, that's very nice, and walked away? Or have we responded by wanting to get to know him? You see, to know God in the way that Jesus is speaking about here is to live in fellowship with him. Jesus, uh, I love John 17, don't worry, we're not going to go into this, but Jesus carries on to talk about the importance of We do this together. Jesus has come to save a people, to bring us into one people. And we were talking, uh, some of us, we had a leader's breakfast yesterday, and we were talking about how hard we sometimes find it to be knowing God, how we sometimes, we all struggle in our personal relationships with God, and how valuable it is to be doing this together, how valuable it is to have other people who we can talk to, We also talked about the tendency we have to create masks and pretend that we're all okay when perhaps we're not. Or the tendency we have just to share when uh, things are all sorted and we say, I was struggling, but we never say, I am struggling. But God has formed us as a people so we can help to know God together. This is one of the great things about being church. And we pray that our community would be that, a community where we would all know each other and help each other to know God and I pray that for you, I'd ask you to pray that for us, that we would know God and keep knowing him. This isn't something that, that leaders are exempt from. We all 
we all need people to pray for us and challenge us and ask us how our relationship with God is going. Maybe if you're not involved in a home group, that could be a really useful way for you to get a group of people who would ask you those kind of questions. Or if you've just arrived as a student, find a church. It doesn't have to be Portswood. It can be above bar, or I won't list all the others. There's loads. I've just mentioned above bar because there's loads of people here from there. But it could be uh, just find a good church in the city. Find somewhere where you can be helped to grow in your relationship with God. And also get stuck in in the CU. I wonder what priority we give to this in our lives. What priority do we give to knowing God our Father and knowing Jesus in our church, in our church ministry areas? How much of what we do is about knowing Jesus and the Father better or helping others to know Jesus and the Father better? As Joe and I begin our ministry amongst you, it's our desire that we help us all as a church to grow in knowing Jesus and the Father. But maybe you're visiting us today and you're not familiar with what Christianity is all about. Frankly, you find it a bit weird. Maybe, along with many people, you think it's about rules and regulations, traditions and law. Well, I hope you can see from this prayer of Jesus this morning that Christianity is about relationship, not rules. Love, not law. And relationship is a really important theme here. I'd like to finish by inviting you to get to know Jesus and the Father. You've heard him introduce himself to you this morning. How will you respond? What kind of relationship is it that Jesus invites us into? That's a big question. Let me just give you a couple of exciting teasers from uh, later on in the chapter. Later on in chapter 17, Jesus finishes this prayer in verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. The relationship that Jesus enjoyed with the Father is the very relationship he calls us into. This is mind-blowing. John's Gospel begins uh, with, with the words, in, well, verse 18 of John's Gospel, chapter 1. It says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, He has made him known. And that's the relationship, the closest relationship with the Father that Jesus invites us into this morning. I hand over now to whoever.